Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor. Today, I'm joined by Winnie Emley. She's an author and activist originally from New Jersey, who studied folklore mythology at Harvard before going on to study Irish literature as a George Mitchell scholar. Her debut novel, Dark Chapter, a fictional retelling of her real-life rape, won The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize in 2017. Today on the episode, Winnie and I are talking about her second novel, Complicit. In this episode, we talk about using fiction to discuss sexual violence and the reporting of sexual violence, the nuances of power dynamics within working relationships, and of course, the pleasures of film and writing about an industry that is both incredibly glamorous, but filled with inequity as well. We also talk about using Arts Council grants to fund fiction writing. So if that interests you, do listen on. Complicit is out now, and there is a link in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Winnie. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Good morning. Um, let's talk about Complicit, first of all. Um, I really, I, I absolutely hoovered it up. I read it so quickly. Um, it's such an interesting book in terms of pace, but also what you explore. And just briefly, you know, it's the novel, it's a novel told from a first, mostly from a first person perspective um, from Sarah, who is, um, she's, I guess she's, um, she's directing her words towards one particular person, a journalist for most of the book. And she's looking at everything in that happens in the book from a 10 year perspective. And I was just wondering if right from the beginning, that was, that was a very deliberate choice that it was always going to be about her perspective on something that happened quite far in the past. Yeah. I think that was always the, um, going to be the approach. And some of it was because of subject matter. And some of that decision was because of, um, how the, the content of the book resonated with my own experience. Um, so in terms of subject matter, uh, you know, if you look at the marketing, it's, it's hashtag me too, and it's about the film industry. Um, so I had started writing it pretty much about only six to nine months after the Weinstein allegations had first broken. Right. So that would have been summer 2018. So at the time, um, I just finished writing Dark Chapter, which is also about sexual violence and in a much more kind of direct and, and um, I guess, visceral way. And so I, I was a bit hesitant to write about similar topics, sexual assault, um, sexual harassment, um, again, in my second book. So I realized that the only way I'd be interested enough to write it, in, it was if I approached it through this kind of sort of, I guess, past present lens mm-hmm. and approach it through the lens of somebody looking back on something that happened, potentially something traumatic that happened 10 years on. Um, so that was, you know, if, if I just wrote like a straightforward, like, you know, this happens, uh, you know, girl goes into the film industry, she runs up to obstacles, bad things happen, and then et cetera, et cetera, that would have been too straightforward for me as a writer. So I kind of wanted the inter- that the interweaving of, of past and present um, to kind of create the suspense to draw the reader along, but also to create the, the that quite important frame story of her speaking to a journalist about mm-hmm. things that happened 10 years on, and then also to really kind of explore that emotional territory of 
being older and more cynical and maybe bitter and looking back on a time when you were much more naive and innocent and hopeful and kind of ambitious about having a film career um, and just kind of the scales falling from your eyes in the 10 years and realizing that maybe you were a little bit too naive thinking that the film industry was this way when actually it was always going to be stacked against you. Um, so, and then in terms of that, like that really did connect to my own kind of emotions as a person, right? Because I started writing the book in... 2018, which was exactly 10 years after my own real-life rape in 2008. Um, of course, my own rape didn't happen in the context of the film industry, but having that sort of 10-year gap between the actual trauma and and where you were now in life um, was something that I wanted to, to explore um, through my character. Um, and also, yeah, I, I think it, it, was, it was very much about that, that kind of distinction between the, the kind of older, more bitter present-day Sarah, who's maybe confronting things that had happened 10 years ago and how she may have been complicit or how she, you know, maybe had been victimized or not. Um, and is seeing that through the lens of um, using that kind of lens of 10 years to look back mm. on how she was older, uh, you know, when she was much younger um, 10 years ago. Yeah. And, um, and, and what struck me so much about the novel was, um, was all of these different power struggles that happen within the novel that are so much more nuanced and grey than often uh, power struggles are kind of um, put onto the page or onto the screen in a way. Um, you know, almost, you know, the fact that Sarah herself, who is daughter of immigrants, she's extremely hardworking, she is a real outsider in the industry when she comes in. Um, and and, and that gives her such a different position from which to act within the industry. But then within that, you've got, you know, characters like Sylvia, her boss, who is um, is a very powerful white woman. But, you know, her power in a way pales in comparison to, to some of the men on the scene as well. And within each character, each kind of each of the relationships within the book, there's all different ways of exploring power. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and, you know, and that is the world that we live in. Right. I mean, even outside of the film industry, I mean, if, if you step into any scenario, there's going to be a power differential. Right. Um, in any family, you know, there's more powerful people like parents and like less powerful people. And those things change as people get older and, and get more experienced. Um, and in any work scenario, of course, you know, as much as some people want to say a workplace is egalitarian and, and non-hierarchical. It is always going to be hierarchical. There's always somebody who sets up the workplace, who pays people's salaries. Um, and so, and there's always going to be, you know, the young person, you know, who's maybe eager to start a kind of career or maybe just needs to earn money or, you know, I mean, people have all sorts of reasons why they go into a film, into a, a workplace, right? But in film, in the film industry, that's particularly pronounced because on one hand, you know, we're all, so many of us are, I mean, anybody that works in the film industry is probably on some level drawn in by the glamour and, and the magic of movie making. Um, as you stay in that industry, you probably get a bit more cynical um, and a bit more hardened to it all. Um, but that kind of artistic passion is sort of always going to be there. But then that also runs up against so many other kinds of differential of power, like yeah. gender and class and, and race and, and money, right? And at the end of the day, movie making is an expensive it's an expensive way of making art right so it's going to end up being an industry that really follows the money because you can't make certain kinds of films unless you are able to unlock certain kinds of money um and then if you're spending that much to make something then you know it, it there's there's so much that gets tied into who has the money and who has the power um and oftentimes it's not fair it's not it's not necessarily the smartest or the most technical or the most talented person that gets the power it's it's the richest person you know on the yeah. scene 
It does make such an interesting backdrop for a story like this. Um, to, to be able to explore all of those different things, you know, it is, it's such a hierarchical industry, I think, um, in a way, probably more so than, than, um, than lots of other industries. Um, and so just those power dynamics are so interesting. But I guess as well, um, even aside from the Weinstein thing, I, I think, do you think, um, I think this would have been an interesting kind of thing to explore anyway, just because of the uniqueness in some ways of the industry. And I'm sure there are other creative industries with lots of money attached, like music, for instance, that um, have sort of a similar hierarchical structures. But so um, within that um, as well, um, you've got Tom, the New York Times journalist, who is really interesting to me. You've chose, you chose somebody really almost quite opposite to Sarah, our, the main character, um, opposite to her in almost every way. He clearly comes from a very powerful family, like similar to the Kennedys or something like that. Um, and yet here he is, a young man in the New York Times uh, who's, who's exploring this kind of um, real investigative journalism and she doesn't really understand him and she's so, so cautious of him after everything she's been through. Um, so was that very much deliberate you wanted to put something somebody completely almost completely socially opposite to her um to try and get yeah, exactly. away from her yeah because i think you know as much as you know tom doesn't figure it all into the past but you know the only reason she's telling this story to us the readers um is because tom reached out to her so uh and effectively he is the key to unlocking kind of the story of, of sarah's past so and, and she's very reluctant to tell that story even more wary because he's somebody who comes from such a different world. He's so privileged. He's, you know, this like good looking blonde guy, Kennedy-esque, I suppose. Um, so uh, so she, she, he does represent everything that Sarah doesn't have in some ways and is incredibly wary of. Um, so that I felt that kind of relationship, like, can I trust this person? The power relationship of somebody being a New York Times journalist and somebody effectively being a Sarah feels she's a feel she's a nobody um, when the book opens because her film career like you know crashed and burned um so that kind of power dynamic that reminder to her that you know there's always gonna be you know more powerful people out there people who are well connected and privileged purely because of their family connections I wanted to kind of use that um to I guess emphasize um Sarah's wariness. And so as the book progresses, it's about, you know, can she trust them with the story? Um, and is there a value to telling the story? Um, and I think I also wanted to tap into, you know, again, I'm a sexual assault survivor, rape survivor myself, and I've had quite a lot of you know engagement with the media. Um, and so I've worked with lots of journalists, and I think there's always one is always going to be quite wary of journalists, unless you're a complete pro at it, right? Um, which comes mm -hmm. with experience. But if it's the first time that you're telling your story, or one of the first times you're telling your story to a journalist, yeah, you are going to be very wary because that that person has all the power to take your words and take, you know, an incredibly personal traumatic experience and use it as content um, for a wider audience, and, and and to you know they themselves are going to gain something in their career because it's going to they're going to become known as you know the 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 just the person fighting for justice through journalism or somebody doing a big expose, but they're using your story and your pain. Um, so again, I wanted to look at that. And also, you know, there's the gender dynamic of, you know, maybe Tom hasn't ever had to experience this in his life. So is he the right person to be telling the story? And is he in that position as a, you know, 20 something person who happens to work for New York Times purely because of his own family connections? So um, yeah, that was really important. And it was important also to have a relationship with, you know, because he's the only person that you see present day Sarah having a relationship with. All the other relationships are are, are 20 something Sarah. 
and her workplace um, dynamics. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to show a quite different relationship with her mm-hmm. and, and the man, right? Because in the past, you see her with Hugo North, who was the Weinstein-esque figure, and also with Xander, who is the director, who's a very kind of arrogant, cocky guy. And, and Tom is like a different a different version of that privilege, but also a very different version of what you yeah. could do with that privilege. Yeah, that was what um, I found really interesting, is that to go, when you go, because you kind of move between the present and the past, um, and also throughout, there's also some transcripts um, peppered throughout from um, from Sylvia, who's um, Winnie's boss, and a couple of other conversations that Tom. Sarah's uh, boss. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> sorry, I was just looking. I was looking at the cover, and I was looking at your name. Um, um, so, yeah. So th- those transcripts as well were really interesting. I, <clears throat> in a way, peppering them throughout, we we're able to see from a slightly different angle, everything that Sarah is talking about. Um, And in some ways we learn so much about Sarah, but we also learn so much about Sylvia and the way different people in different power positions looking at the same situation can see things so differently. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I'm glad that the transcripts worked for you. Those were quite late addition in, in the writing process. So I basically wrote three drafts. And then in the four, and then had the baby, right? Um, and then so there was a pretty long gap between you know the third draft and the fourth draft because I had a baby and you know I was going through having a newborn in lockdown. Um, and so I didn't pick up the fourth draft until at least six months after a six month gap. Um, and so I think maybe that perspective helped because I, when I reread the version when I, that it existed at the time, the, th- the third draft is like, okay, it's so much of it's in Sarah's voice. And yes, we get that difference between present day Sarah and past Sarah, but you know, it, it's quite monolithic in terms of her voice. And at the end of the day, especially if we're talking about issues of me too, it, it is about, you know, there's different sides of the story as anybody will always say, right? Um, so what are those other sides of the story and how, and if this is really about women in the film industry, you know, what are the experiences? Can we catch glimpses of the other experiences of other women in the film industry? So, so yes, you see, you can hear quite a lot from Sylvia, again, looking back, because there's that 10-year difference um, between, you know, when she's being interviewed and, uh, and the events that she's um, recounting. Um, but then you see other, are the women like a, a female casting director you know a female publicist um a young woman that sarah encounters at the party um 10 years ago so all these people have like slightly different takes on what happened they've slightly different takes on the hugo north character um and i felt that was important because you know sarah's gonna have one working relationship with this this with this perpetrator but then other people are gonna see a different aspect to him and see a different side to him and figure out different strategies and how to work with him um because at the end of the day it's because he's so wealthy that people wanted to work with him because he could open doors and fund films and and things like that so it really is about in some ways people's personal ambition Mm. because if a very wealthy person walks into the room and says, I could fund your film. Yeah. For any filmmaker, that is, that is like a dream come true. So you are going to want to keep that person on your side. Um, And you may look the other way or maybe ignore certain behaviors because you want that person's money, because you want them to fund your film. So that kind of ethical um, graying of the line or Mm -hmm. something I wanted to explore in the book. And, and only women, we only hear from the female perspective. Yeah. Throughout the whole, yeah, throughout the yeah. whole book. Um, and and so yeah, and I and I also loved that as well as the different women we hear from are in very different positions, like in, in terms of, you know, very they're coming from they're different age groups. 
Um, they're different. They have different amounts of power within the industry. Some have zero power at all and, you know, some have quite a bit more. Um, and it's interesting. It is really interesting to see everyone's different takes. And, and like you say, what they're kind of willing to do and the workarounds that they've come up with to deal with characters like him. Yeah. Because it's really clear, I guess, from talking, like from a lot of what these women are talking about, it's, you know, this is not one person. This is, he is one of many that they've had to deal with over the years. Yeah. And they have their ways of dealing with them. Um, so, um, so in t- getting to the writing of it now, mm. um, when, um, when you, when you, after your first book came out, um, and you were thinking about doing this and you were a bit uncertain about doing it because it was kind of, you know, obviously it's a very different kind of book to your first book yeah. in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of in similar territory. Um, in the end, um, was it finding the way you wanted to tell the story was the thing that allowed you to kind of move forward with it? What, what was it that sort of unlocked you being able to move forward with it? Um, I think I was actually being able to write about the film industry, right? Um, so, and, and that's very tied to my personal experience because I used to work in the film industry in my 20s. Like, so, you know, I'm American, but I moved to London um, specifically to see if I could work in film. And and I did, and I, and I worked for an older female boss. Um, and and thankfully, I never encountered anyone exactly like Weinstein or, or Hugo North himself, but there were certainly different versions of that, different flavors of that that I encountered. Um, so, but, you know, I, so tw- I was 23 to 29 when I worked in the film industry, and it was this very fraught, you know, hardworking, you know, fun, but also sort of crazy experience. Um, and then that all ended in 20, when I was 29, when I was assaulted. Uh, raped in the park by a stranger, um, and that's so why I never regained that film producing career. And and there was always kind of a sense of loss about that. And you know, I've always continued to love film since then. So it's there was that sort of ambivalence slash sadness about you know loving an art form film. Um, and also no longer being able to work in the industry that created it because of circumstances completely out of my control um, and because of, you know, just the general injustice of sexual violence, um, which I experienced. So um, I think it was because this allowed me to write about the film industry again that that kind of fired up like, oh, no, I can revisit those kinds of crazy days in my in my 20s when I thought I was going to be a film producer. Um, and all the kind of the fun and the glamour of it, you know, there's you know, the Cannes Film Festival and award ceremonies and premieres. So all of that, like all the after parties I could revisit, but then also really look at you know, the problems within the industry and how kind of unfair and it was and and how like slightly creepy things might happen but you'd sort of like look the uh, you know look in the other direction and how those slightly creepy things could have been even creepier if it had been a different kind of perpetrator that I'd encountered right so um I think it was by but being able to write about it through the lens of film a love of film and also like a knowledge of the industry was I kind of what made it fun for me um because as Sarah's recounting the past story basically she's talking to Tom about the making of one particular film um which is the film that launched the career of a of a now A-list actress um fictional obviously um so I think because I was able to follow that narrative of like okay we're making a film um which also falls into the narrative that you haven't seen movies like we're making we're putting on a show that kind of so that sort of natural like that drama that builds up when you're moving towards making a show right um so I could follow that dynamic but then also you know I'd never read 
a book before that really was set in the film industry and really showed how a film was made, right? Like, you, you know, there obviously are lots of novels set in the industry. Um, oftentimes, if you see a, a woman character, she wants to be an actress or she is an actress. You didn't really see that many novels set seen from the point of view of a woman who works behind the scenes. Mm. And certainly, until recently, no novels where the point of view character was a woman of color or, frankly, even a person of color in the film industry. So all that hadn't been explored. But then also you know all like the really actually quite mundane details of making a film like trying to raise financing and like you know trying to balance a budget um and deciding you know what kind of car we can use in a car chase scene um things that are actually like quite boring but other people might find it interesting i wanted to sort of put that in because i hadn't actually seen that before um in a book that really followed the making of a particular film there is a really wonderful bit that i loved (laughs) when sarah is explaining how you know she's gone to la they're starting production and she talks about how boring it is on set and is explaining to the journalist how boring filmmaking is like in like a minute by minute. Um, it just made me laugh so much. I have worked a bit in film and it is so true. Some So much of filmmaking is so boring. But it reads so brilliantly on the page as well. And like you say, I can't think of another novel that really goes this deep into into the the kind of creation of film it's really um yeah it's I I could I could read about it a lot so I was very happy reading about all but so in terms of the writing um I know you've been the recipient of a number of grants was was a, was I were you using a grant when you were doing the manuscript of this before you sold it yeah, I was actually. Um, yeah, I used um, a, what do you call it? Um, Arts Council of England um, project grant. So, um, and it was actually I'd applied because you know there's there's definitely like a formula for filling out um, grants. Yeah. Um, so actually, I had heard about the project grants, and somebody said like, "Oh, you can get up to fifteen grand, you know, for an individual project." I'm like, "Oh, that's amazing, right?" Um, and I um, applied, and I actually had even met one of the literature officers in Arts Council. England who encouraged me to apply um and then I didn't get it right and so and you know it's in the project grants is like a very complicated very competitive yeah very complicated um you know uh form to fill out this online form through some online portal and it's like you know can you summarize your entire artistic career in like 500 characters or something like that maybe 500 words but um but you know so in some ways like you know, I applied and it was, I was just like annoyed that I'd spent, you know, frustrated that I'd spent so much time. And then I did go back to the literature officer and said, listen, I actually didn't get it. And she's like, okay, well, there's definitely ways to work around this. So the Arts Council, I did find, you know, I did speak to other people who then helped me mm. put together, revise my grant application. You have to build in public engagement. So you kind of have to do all the stuff just to show that you are meeting the the criteria that they're looking for, right? Um, but I did get it. And, and that was a huge kind of relief financially and also psychologically to know that, okay, I had 15 grand that I could live off of um, to try to you know make the novel as good as it could be before I submitted it um yeah so I mean it is um and I've since gotten uh other grants from the Arts Council I mean they actually they had a COVID emergency grant for artists um I have a a, what's called the DYCP developing your creative practice grant with them right now so I think once you get the hang of figuring out how to fill out the Arts Council grants then um then actually you know the money is there and it can support your artistic practice um 
but it's about figuring out what kind of what things you have to say in those little boxes exactly and so I think that's really really good advice for listeners to make sure you do seek out the literature um, person within the arts council to ask for advice directly don't put the application in without getting advice because it could be a huge waste of time otherwise yeah but also do like there are two different kinds of grants you can apply for and and so you're now on your second one which is which is the developing your your creative practice um yeah so that's I'm going to put a link to the show notes to the arts council as well so that people who are interested can have a look at that um in terms of your wider career um you're currently doing a PhD am I right about um in um media and um storytelling around um um victims of sexual violence is that right yeah media and communications um yeah so that's um at the London School of Economics which is kind of quite very different um from Goldsmiths where I did my master's in creative writing um and you know and I suppose um you know in retrospect maybe I would be doing my PhD in a more arts and humanities type um university because that probably gels better with my interests but like you know I am learning um I'm like I think for me to suddenly you know essentially I just applied for PhDs right you know and in London (laughs) at the time um so and so a lot of it is like where do you end up getting the money to do your PhD um and so I've always had an interest obviously as a sexual assault survivor myself um in how these stories are told and why individual survivors would choose to tell their stories like to a public audience right because there's quite a lot of the the emotional stakes are quite high right Mm -hmm. you know and the social stakes are quite high to be doing that um so yeah I basically applied for the PhD when my first novel was going on submission right so the PhD was kind of like a backup for me in terms of like well what happens if like you know because we all know novel writing is um an unsteady and not necessarily lucrative career so that the PhD was doing kind of I applied for that as backup um but then during the course of the PhD, like the novel writing sort of took over. So for me, it's been interesting to try to like balance the PhD mm-hmm. work um, with the novel writing. But I think for me, it is um, it is about kind of uh, I'm interviewing um, other rape survivors who have engaged with the media. They've been in like TV documentaries or they have their own contests or, you know, they write their own books about their experience and, and why they keep on doing it um, or what sustains them in doing it. Um, and again, a lot of it, you know, going back to some of the themes explored and complicit are about class right it's about class and social capital cultural capital uh the media obviously likes a particular kind of survivor right somebody who's mm-hmm. photogenic and generally a woman um and you know and and can speak you know somebody who's mediagenic and can speak on television and that is not something that you're born with like that all comes through you know your education and your class and the kinds of circles that you run in um or an ability to kind of learn all those sorts of things um so that ends up filtering out the kinds of survivor stories you actually do here in the media so there's that kind of aspect to it, but then it's also what sustains someone being able to continue to do that because it is very emotionally intense. Um, you do get quite hardened or bitter, maybe not bitter, but you do get quite hardened about your engaging with the media. So even though there's no longer, so for me now at this point, right, it's 20, it's like 14 years since my rape and I do speak, you know, I can speak quite easily about it to the media, but that comes with a huge amount of practice, right? Um, yeah. And also, you know, it, and Ryan Tuberty, unlike you know, the, one of like Ireland's leading radio presenters, asked me this. He's like, "I'm surprised that you can talk about this and not like cry, right?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, what do you expect me to do? like? I'm not going to cry every single time I talk about my rape." But and the thing is, like, if I did, then I wouldn't, you know, that would destroy me emotionally, right? Yeah. So 
there's this balance between like the professionalism of being able to tell the story and, you know, allowing that to affect you emotionally every single time. Right. Um, so, the, you know, why do I keep on doing this? Right. You know, so I'm kind of doing an audio ethnography as well, but I'm asking other, other survivors what they're, why they're doing it. And for them, some of it is career, right. You know, and like they, they have other things and, and doing the media is actually publicity for their careers. Um, I mean, you could arguably say that about me as a novelist. Um, and for some of them, it is, you know, maybe they don't have to worry about money or or earning money. So this is just something that they very much believe in and they happen to have the capital that allows them to continue doing it. So I think um, there's a lot of things I'm kind of exploring through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very, very different process from writing a novel. So it's in some ways, in, in the same way that, you know, but if I look at Dark Chapter and Complicit, similar territory, but two very different approaches in fiction here, kind of similar territory is Complicit, but like obviously very different approach because it's, yeah. it's a science research, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and you also do a lot of work um, directly as an activist um, around sexual violence. And um, and you were the founder of Clear Lines Festival, which is um, all around um, the arts and sexual violence. And um, and so, have you seen? I'd love to ask. Have you seen the first one was in two thousand and fifteen? Am I right with that festival? Yeah. Um, how has how has that changed in those seven years? How has media engagement in these topics changed in those seven years? Oh, hugely. I mean, like in 2015, you know, the reason we called it Clear Lines was because there had been that video yeah. word lines, right? You know, yeah. um, which, <laughs> I was assuming, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which caused this whole kind of outrage. And I don't think a video like that or a song like that would be made yeah. anymore, right? You know? Um, and so even in the course of like seven years, you're getting um, certainly kind of the mainstream or let's say Hollywood um, media making machine much more conscious about these issues. I mean, and and that ties into like a, a much wider discussion about inclusivity. Um, you know, again, if we're looking at Netflix, the, the, the diverse casting that you see on Netflix now is very different from what happened seven years ago. Yeah. Um, I just did a press conference with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is the organization that runs the Golden Globes. And mm-hmm. Golden Globes got completely called out recently. I mean, they had to effectively cancel their award ceremony last year because they weren't inclusive enough, right? So you're getting these like much broader conversations in um, at least kind of the Hollywood machine. Um, you know, and obviously if you look outside, even outside of Hollywood, like, you know, there's there's lots of um, work being done that addresses sexual assault and rape from and from a survivor perspective. So, you know, I'm thinking of I May Destroy You, um, the BBC, uh, BBC TV series by Michaela Cole here, which was fantastic and showed, you know, a very different, very, you know, quote unquote, diverse voice in exploring this kind of issue. Um, but also, you know, a survivor that was flawed and came from, you know, really interesting background and all that was explored in a way that, um, you know, I don't know if a project like that would have been greenlit, you know, seven years ago or 10 years ago. Right. Um, so things are changing. Um, but, you know, I still, I, but, I, you know, at this point in 2022, we're running up against this, you know, kind of backlash and people rolling their eyes and being like, oh, it's me too. It's like, it has its run its course. So you had the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp um, case where people are saying, oh, this is the end of me too. Even now, again, and I'm sorry that all these things are going back to conversation about Hollywood, you know, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's kind of yeah. ongoing divorce scenario. People, You're getting kind of, again, a, rep- a repetition of people saying like, oh, this is too much. And like, you know, can't we just let this issue lie? And the fact is that, you know, as an activist, no, we can't, right? You know, because it's not like 
once Weinstein was put in jail, like all the predators stopped, you know, <laughs> perpetrating their power, you know, you know, uh, enforcing this kind of trauma on other people. Like it, the, there are still perpetrators out there. I don't think there, much has been done in the British film industry um, to address this issue and may never be done. Right. So just because, you know, the most mediated place Hollywood is making those kinds of changes or attempting to doesn't mean that the rest of the world is necessarily kind of addressing that kind of um, imbalance of power. So, yeah. So I think, you know, you still definitely have this issue, but you are obviously at this point getting people who are tired of it as well, um, even though it continues to be a reality for a lot of women out there. Yeah, which I guess is probably true of, of so many movements that once you actually start making progress, a backlash starts to rise up. And so I guess persistence <laughs> is yeah. key at this point, right? Keeping on going and keeping on going. Um, and so just to change tax completely, um, you've done so many different writing, so much different writing over your over your career, um, um, as well as working in film. And I was I saw that you actually started as a travel writer for Let's Go Guys. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> it's just so incredible at 19. Um, so so how did that happen? And then, um, and also, are you, what are you kind of moving towards? Are you going to stick with, um, with novel writing or are you going to work in other forms as well? Uh, yeah, no, good question. Um, I, yeah, so I love travel, right? And I always have, and that hasn't come up in the conversation yet and often doesn't because most times conversations about film or sexual violence or what have you. But I mean, from a really young age, I always wanted to travel Maybe that comes from, you know, I, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. Um, so I grew up in a very white town in uh, New Jersey. So I never felt like I fit in. Right. So part of me always wanted to be somewhere else or, you know, just explore the world. Right. Um, the wider world out there. Um, so I yeah, I love traveling. And then basically when I was um, at university, OK, again, cultural capital coming to play here. You know, I, I went to Harvard and um, Harvard students run this uh travel guide book series called um, Let's Go. So basically, if you're a student there during the summers, you can apply for a job where they send you to whatever country. And and it's not creative writing in any way whatsoever. Like you basically are just going to all the different places listed in the guide and just checking to make sure all the facts are correct, right? Um, occasionally, you get to put in a new place. But for the most part, it's like, okay, what are the opening hours of this, of this tourist office, right? So it's not really that interesting um, in that sense from a writing perspective. But it did give me a chance to kind of explore the world. So I got sent to Germany my first year when I was 19. Um, and then later on, two years later, I went to Scotland. So, you know, as a 19-year-old, you know, American who hadn't really traveled much to be able to kind of spend seven weeks visiting all these different places in Germany um, was incredible, right? Um, so that really kind of unlocked a love of travel um, in me. And I suppose one of the reasons I'm still living abroad is because, you know, living abroad is a form of travel, I suppose. Um, although I'm now, you know, it's many, many years on from that, like two decades Same. on from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would know. So, I mean, but being able to live in London, um, you know, you can travel to so many other places um, as opposed to if I was living in the States, right? You know, it's like five hours of flying you're still in the States, right? Um, so that was kind of really what drew me to living um, abroad. I, I moved to Ireland originally um, 
I got a fellowship to study Irish literature there, and then eventually moved to London to work in film. Um, and so, and that figures in, a bit into Dark Chapter because the, the main character, Vivian, in Dark Chapter obviously loves traveling and she loves like hiking and being outdoors on her own. And that's mm. what she happens to encounter um, her rapist, unfortunately. Um, and that kind of mirrored my experience because I, you know, had spent so much of my life traveling and trying to seek out adventure. And then suddenly I was raped by a stranger in the park. And that really kind of, fundamentally changed you know what I felt I could do as a person um and then a lot of the recovery was about trying to regain that ability to travel on my own um so yes you could say that you know obviously dark chapter grew immediately out of that experience and then complicit grew out of that plus my film experience but older than all of that was my love of travel right so I would love to kind of explore na- travel and nature writing somehow. Um, I've done bits of kind of essays and stuff like that, but I've never really like sought out being established as a travel and nature writer. And I think, you know, now that I'm known as a novelist or feminist novelist, right, who writes about contemporary issues, I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I figure out how to address that in my writing and still maintain whatever brand or whatever, you know, authors are known for doing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's why I, you know, the Arts Council grant, the DYCP one is about trying to like expand or explore and how I can address travel and nature writing. Um, my next novel, which I'm working on, is about a road trip. Um, so, you know, again, the focus is more on kind of societal issues of kind of race and class and gender um, in 21st century America, but it it does involve a road trip. So there is that kind of love of travel that I've woven in. And I did a road trip a year ago with my partner and my toddler. We drove Route 66 um, from Chicago to LA just because I'm like, I need to I need to do research for this road trip. But it was also kind of a way to get me to travel again. So um, yeah, I'd love to incorporate issues of travel because travel, displacement, identity, everything that comes mm-hmm. with that, especially as a woman of color. I mean, that's been my life, but that's it's also those are the exact issues I like to explore. Um, and so obviously in complicit, there isn't much traveling happening, but it is about going out into the world as a young woman of color and yeah. finding obstacles that you run up against, right? And figuring out how to you know navigate around those obstacles. Um, so that is all stuff I would like to continue exploring. Um, and yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, I'd love to write a book of essays about nature and travel writing. Um uh, you know, I've only got 24 hours in a day, and so I've got to <laughs> the other novel first. So we will see. Oh, well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Um, Complicit is out now, um, available everywhere. I'll put links in the show notes, as well as Dark Chapter, which is also out there. Um, it's just such a compulsive read. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Oh, thanks so much, Penny. I appreciate it. 